All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Understanding the IU podcast here at Carbon Lehigh Intermediate Unit 21. And episode two is about uh, the heart and soul of our entire organization, special programs and services. And I'm here with the director of special programs and services, Dr. Mark Scott, even though you hate when I call you Dr. Scott. So Mark, it is. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, the whole reason of this podcast is to get to know our, you know, our programs in and of itself, regardless of what department. So really, this is pretty broad what we're speaking about today. And so we'll interview some other of your supervisors, you know, throughout the year. But today is really kind of broad stroking what, you know, SPS is kind of all about. And so I don't know if, you know, when when people from different IUs ask, is there like a mantra or a mission statement that you kind of have aside from helping children learn, which is for the IU at large? Um, well, I believe our, our real mission and our vision is helping students learn. But with that, we're a, a, a person-centered organization. So staffing and growth and development of our staff, education of our parents, it's not just so myopic that we're looking at just the students. It's an overall approach, a systems-wide approach. If you will, it takes a village. Um, so obviously there are not, – not every IU is the same and not everyone has the same programs. But you know, at home for the general public – you know, we have we do have our I don't want to say typical, but things that you envision easier: autism intervention, treating children with uh, with Down syndrome, or just emotional support. Kind of talk about the things that I think maybe are obvious to the people at home that maybe not that don't have any interaction with the IU. Well, there's the services that are the big classroom services like that. But we also go into our school districts to provide occupational therapy supports for students for fine motor, physical therapy. We also provide speech and language services in many of our districts as well. So those are supports that happen in their home school, often in their home classrooms that we push in to do as well. Uh, we have some very unique programs. Um, we tend to work with our colleague and neighboring IUs so that we don't duplicate services that are really unique and where there's small numbers that need to be served. Um, we've worked very closely with a neighboring IU uh, to develop an I, a deaf and hard of hearing program that supports the whole Lehigh Valley region and maybe a little bit beyond with that piece. We all the way from kindergarten through 12 plus. Um, we have a program that one of our districts hosts uh, for that kind of process. And when we talk about enhanced autism uh, programs, autism is such a, a wide range. We like to say once you've seen one student that's been identified um, somewhere on the autistic spectrum, you've seen one student. Each student is unique. But we have developed a specialized program that very few IUs and school districts across the Commonwealth have that really are for students that are so severe, we have them in a separate building. And our supports have been able to put be put together to help those students avoid having to leave their homes to go to residential programs, to be able to keep them at home, to keep them in an educational process and help them make progress to becoming an adult and be involved in 
uh, valuable adult kind of enterprises. Yeah, obviously we see classrooms where they're in a middle school, elementary school or a high school. And then we see our learning achievement schools. Um, and just, you know, making sure that they go home every day is obviously one thing. But why is it so important to maybe have these classrooms as spread out as possible in their home districts? Why is that more effective than bringing everyone to one building, sort of like class last and ALAS? Well, obviously, um, important part of learning is not just reading, writing, arithmetic. It's about the social interaction, learning how to get along and be a contributing member of our society. And so the more we can engage our students with other students in their home school, the more chance there is for normal relationships. The other piece that it brings, even for some of our more challenged students with complex needs to be in a regular classroom or in a regular school building, it helps those other students grow in their empathy and understanding of one another and helps for that whole process of diversity and being a truly diverse community. One of the things that I kind of that, that I've noticed is when you are in the specialized school and kind of like what you're talking about, is there is there also something to maybe just being with a group of students that are only like you? The uh, often what we find is the complexity of our our high schools, our schools, even when they're smaller, but when even when they get to really large, students can get overwhelmed. And so there is a sense of community that's kind of developed in these smaller programs. Um, often these students will go up, whether they're in a district or in one of our center-based programs, they will kind of move up through the ranks together. And they some of them develop strong relationships that go beyond. They get together for recreational activities and do other things in the community together. So there's a sense of community, if you will, that and identity. Um, that is sometimes developed in these smaller programs, even when they are in separate facilities. Um, now, the one program that I want to go to next is something that I've just really been learning about recently with my work with Matt and Allie, and that's early uh, early intervention. And, you know, kind of an unsung hero. Why is it so important for a mother or a father who maybe has a child that's two or three years old and they might suspect that there is a developmental delay or or a special need there. Why is it so important to get your child in the mix with early intervention as early as possible? Well, it's the whole notion of the earlier you can intervene, the better chance you have of making meaningful success. And just for the, the student's sense of self, if you will, it gives them a solid foundation earlier. It builds their confidence. It allows them to interact. We know uh, society in general can be harsh um, if you're a little bit different. And so the sooner that we can help students normalize that uh, their needs, have confidence in who they are, the better they're able to learn and to interact earlier. We also know that a lot of brain development really happens at those young ages. 
And so as we continue to learn more about trauma, resiliency, and true brain development, the more that we can stimulate the brain, it's not a muscle, it's a little bit different, but the more that we provide that stimulus to the brain, the more chance that we have of developing stronger neural circuits that allow the students to be successful in whatever venue or whatever avenue that we're addressing. And one of the things that when I was talking to Kelly Hoban at the Troxel building about early intervention, she said that, you know, these students don't stay here forever. You know, it seemed, you know, obviously if you are a student with a condition that won't, isn't fixable or won't go away, um, you're going to be in an IU system, you know, for the majority of, of your school life. But she said one of the most important things is helping, getting the students the help they need to actually move out, so to speak. Well, and that should be the goal of all quote unquote special education, um, You may be interested to know in our early intervention that we're serving over 2,400 students right now in the Lehigh Valley. And of that, there's approximately about 80 of them that's actually in classrooms. So we have over 200 child care sites or community sites that we go into to help students with those services in that environment, again, with the idea of helping them overcome the challenge they have as quickly as possible so that they can start their school career in a normal path and to be successful. One of the, you know, kind of going back to some of the more obvious programs, MDSF and MDSB, if you can just kind of break that down for us a little bit and what you see your teachers, IAs and professionals doing on a, on an everyday basis. So just to to clarify, we call MDSB, which is multiple disabilities, behavioral. That's what more people think about when they think an autistic support classroom. But we don't use the label of autism. We see the needs, the behaviors, and we address it regardless of what the student's disability might be. Whereas the multiple disabilities functional are students that tend to have more complex Um, physical or medical needs involved in um, their process. So we have those two different groups. We have wonderful staff. It takes such a passion to work with students in general, and it really takes a special person. And when you walk into a classroom, your heart melts just because of the the, the true love that you see um, that these folks have for their students. And so we have teachers who are responsible for the overall classroom. We have an instructional assistant, and many people have heard about aides in the classroom or something, but these folks really reinforce the the instruction with the students and support their hygiene and physical needs as well in that piece. We have behavioral specialists that we call autism interventionists or emotional support interventionists that really work on specifically identifying and working with the behaviors and supporting the students in those classrooms. So they work as a unit. Attached to that, we also have psychologists and social workers who also are assigned to the classrooms to come in and provide those supports, not only to the students, but to the family and any additional services. So there's many people involved in each child's life in our classrooms to support their individual needs, looking at the individual student and their individual needs. 
Uh, so just to kind of remind the listener who I am, I'm the media facilitator and I go to classrooms not as often as I'd like, but I get into these classrooms and you do not realize how many professionals are in a room until you enter and you're like, oh, there's, you know, obviously because I went to went through a typical brick and mortar school in Northern Lehigh. So I see one teacher in, in the front, maybe an aide, depending on the class. Um but I go in there, seven adults, six adults. So the ratio is, is I, don't, I don't know how I necessarily want to characterize it, but it's it's pretty close to three to one or four to one as you're going to get um, mm-hmm. in some classrooms. That's the case. Um, and they do all have their individual role. Um, is, there, is there one position that we're seeing that we, we need more than and as far as like sheer numbers? Well, the the last couple of years have really made it uh, a challenge across all aspects of education Um, because they work so uniquely and they each have their own perspective. We have um, three professionals, the supervisor, and I didn't even talk about that, that there's a supervisor that oversees multiple classrooms, supports our teachers and all everyone that I mentioned. We have the teacher and we have the school psychologist and social worker. Those four really form a cohesive group and really work collaboratively together to make decisions for the classrooms, to include the parents and to engage them into that that whole process. Right now, I have vacancies in all of those positions. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know that I feel like one's any more valuable because I value the fact that they each come from a different lens. They look at the thing, the whole process from a different angle. And it's that cohesive, collaborative piece that makes sure the whole child is considered and the interventions put into place and the supports put into place include the whole system, which includes the family. Um, I kind of want to move to things that are uh, a a program that's not so obvious. Obviously, you know, you can tell when a student has a disability, whether it's cognitive or physical. Um, But I was just at Tomensing Elementary uh, with with our former uh, teacher, Caitlin Helen, and um, emotional support. You know, I spent time at last in class. I spent time with uh, ESIs at at Tom Mensing. And that's where you, you can't tell, you know, by looking at a student that they might need these services. Can you kind of go through some of our emotional support classrooms, whether it's class, you know, our learning achievement schools or whether it's a classroom at a school? Yeah, so uh, we... Uh, our unique position, one of the unique things about this IU um, is that we have a psychiatrist attached to some of our emotional support programs and specialized mental health workers that are really, it's a partial hospitalization program that's attached. And so we are able to approach all aspects. Um, sometimes students are there because they are restless. You can see that. But the real, I would almost call it an epidemic that we believe we're seeing across all aspects of education are those students that might be called internalizers. They're the students that may be more classically talked about as depressed or withdrawn. Um, They don't create a ruckus. They don't create a disturbance. And so they're the ones who can tend to fly under the radar. 
So being able to have that ability to have a supportive environment with teacher and aides and the mental health professionals to support those students and allow them to blossom and grow in their own confidence and to learn about themselves in a way that helped them to learn how to cope with the many uh, things that they may be experiencing, including the last two and a half years, is something that these emotional support classrooms um, really take into consideration from a trauma perspective. Yeah, uh, I me being a person in my late 20s, um, anyone who really is older than the age of 25 had a maybe, depending on your your situation, had a better time internalizing this. Um, what is, I mean, I, since we kind of brought up the pandemic, what is something that you've been seeing that's an overarching effect of either hybrid, virtual, and just that kind of depersonalization that we kind of lost? Well, we were unique and fortunate in that from early onset, we believed the complex needs of our students really required us to be in person as much as possible. And so the incredible tenacity and integrity of our staff allowed us to do that at such a high degree. We talked about the learning and achievement schools, our emotional support centers. Our attendance was actually higher during the COVID sessions than they were prior. Students found a safe place to come. They found a place that they had connections with adults. Um, So I think that's a real credit to the teams um, and to the programs that the students were able to engage in that piece. And I do think, you know, um, we often are still, we're talking here about not looking in the rearview mirror and let's look ahead. And let's move forward yeah. with what we're doing. Um, one of the wonderful things that has actually come out of that whole uh, process where we did have to do more things virtually at times was we were able to develop our technology skills with our families. Our teachers always had it, but with our families in such a way that they could attend regular meetings with our teachers and understand how to work with their children at home through the instructional strategies we used in the classroom. So our teachers became virtual teachers of parents. And those connections are something I hope we never lose. We now have parents who were able to attend meetings that couldn't take time off of work to drive to these facilities or have the transportation to do so that now can virtually do it on their phone during their lunch break and keep in touch with our teachers, understand the strategies we're doing, and truly be a, a a partner in a way that we haven't been able to experience before. So that's one of the, if you will, blessings that came out of this dark cloud that we've been in the last couple of years. And it, it cannot be understated, uh, regardless of single or dual parent household, an involved parent makes a world of difference. There's It's, it's something that a teacher can't provide, motherhood, fatherhood, parenthood, whatever. Yeah, we are fortunate to have students for, you know, 30 hours a week. Um, And our admiration for parents, um, I admire our teachers, but they go home at the end of the day. Yeah. And they have their weekends. Many of them have their own children with maybe needs of their own, but families to deal with the intense needs of many of our students, they are the real heroes. They're the ones that are just able to do unimaginable things and talk about resiliency. Um, I just continue to be amazed um, with our families 
and the vision they have for their children and their ability to put it together. So it really does take involved parents. I have yet to meet a parent that doesn't want to be involved. Um, it depends on the complexity of their lives sure. and the things that are going on. They want the best and still have the hopes like all of us about the possible outcomes for their children. And it's our job to help do that, to help their children reap the greatest potential that they can. Uh, so that was one of the good things that came from the pandemic. Uh, we just talked about, you know, a whole bevy of programs, uh, early intervention. We talked about autism intervention, MDSF, MDSB, um, now I want to talk about this mental health grant that has come through Montgomery County IU, um, you know, and kind of talk about Jason Savinelli and our behavioral health program here. Um, can you talk about this mental health grant that we are receiving or that we're taking part in? Help me with the wording here. Well, I, I am very passionate about this. Um, several years ago, Montgomery County, Luzerne County, um, the Colonial uh, IU, which is in the Northampton County area and our IU here, really started meeting together as a group because we had behavioral health programs. As a result, we were able to actually get a statewide association kind of started through the Pennsylvania Association of Intermediate Units for Mental Health uh, Services. And so continuing those conversations and seeing how we can um, explore and in increase awareness and reduce the stigma of um, mental illness or mental health needs. Um, Montgomery County applied when collaboration with us and Luzerne County for a federal grant called the AWARE Project. Um, I'm rather proud of the fact that this is the first time in over 15 years that anyone in Pennsylvania has been awarded this federal grant. It's a four-year grant where the overall, there are three goals. The first goal is to implement and pilot with some targeted school districts a universal mental health screener. This would be something that parents would have to agree to and give consent. But the idea of doing a universal screener, because of what we just spoke about, those students that fly under the radar, right? Those students that are withdrawn, they have a lot of worries, but they aren't angry and causing a ruckus such that they come to attention. So we're looking um, and have plans to, in August, implement this with some pilot districts. Each of these IUs that are involved in it has a responsibility of doing these three goals in their own catchment area, in their own counties. So we are working with our school districts right now doing um, needs assessments and surveys to determine the best way to implement that pilot. But we will be moving forward with that in August. So I'm really excited to get that started. The second piece is um, there is a student-led group called Avidum. It's a made-up word that says we've got your back. Kind of sounds like Latin. Awesome. I love right? it. Yeah. It's a student-led program where they really support one another in suicide prevention, right? It's that notion of everybody having somebody that cares about them or can support them in one way. We know kids speak with kids more than they like to speak with parents, particularly in that adolescent Easier range. to express yourself. Correct. Yeah. It's the group you know, right? That's right. That's right. right. It's not my dad, you know, he he's, he's okay, but he's not really cool, right? <laughs> so uh, good dads aren't, aren't always cool. Yeah, correct, I get it. correct. As hard as we try to be. 
Um, this Avidum, we're very fortunate in our IU that many of our districts have had or currently have an Avidum group running. Over the last couple of years, that's kind of dwindled and it's been harder for them to keep it going. One of the things we see in that group is that students, if you have a really passionate leadership of the group, it really does amazing things. But sometimes as those folks graduate and move on, there's a gap in leadership and the group kind of waxes and wanes a little bit. So one of our uh, areas of focus, because we do have so many here, where the other IUs will actually be developing these groups in some of the schools, is to develop a leadership kind of track or framework so that they constantly have that person that's going to step up when somebody moves on and keep this group revitalized and energetic as we move forward. Yeah, continuity is so important that when a student at freshman year of high school knows that at senior year of high school, it's either the same or has gotten better. Correct. And having a strong advisor, a faculty advisor is important in um, that project as well. So we are, um, that's our second goal is to make sure that we've got those revitalized and we've got a process in place to keep them running. And our third one, which is really exciting to me, it's going to probably be in the latter stages of our four-year plan, is currently there is a medical real-time database. So if you have a certain type of medical condition and you go to your doctor or you go to the hospital, the case manager for that that you're working with will be able to go to this database and see, oh... Jefferson University, St. Luke's, Lehigh Valley Health Network, they have this specialty person. And look, it looks like they have some openings to be able to get people into it and be able to connect them with that resource. We want to piggyback on that for behavioral health services. One of the biggest complaints that we hear is that we will have students that we identify a need, yet there's no place to get them any services or We'll have guidance counselors that are literally spending days looking for a place to do to, for them to be able to get those services. So we are looking to piggyback on that and develop that with an ongoing live list of behavioral health services, counselors that have openings that are available, partial hospitalization programs that have beds, all of the outpatient services that have availability, all of those kind of services so that a school guidance counselor or a hospital case manager could call and say, wow, okay. And that handoff is made in such a way, because often we can give a name of a place to a parent and it, it's a struggle for them to be able to make the connection. So uh, having what we call a warm handoff, somebody yeah. that kind of shepherds that process and makes sure the connection is made. There are a lot of problems nationally, internationally, that could be solved if there was a database that a lot of people could you know, access. I don't think people understand how hard it is to connect all these different services. And it's not as easy as calling the phone number and pressing zero and getting mm -hmm. an operator, right? Because if right. it was that easy, we wouldn't need a database. Is that, and like you said, uh, you know, not only get, is, you know, it's not the availability of the appointment it might be just the accessibility and so there's mm -hmm. and there's a clear difference between ac accessible and available um and i guess you've seen it with parents that they don't have time they're working 10 or 12 hours a day and to scour through a phone guide 
to get in touch with the right person seems to be an insurmountable process at times. Well, and finding a, let's say a bilingual therapist or um, yeah. now Mr. Savinelli that you mentioned before, our supervisor of behavioral health, he has done a wonderful job because I had the aforementioned deaf and hard of hearing group. Well, because of their nature of their uh, disability, there's a lot of aspects that are challenging for them socially and emotionally. And talk about a difficulty in finding a therapist who can even sign. So having somebody to really, not over only the global needs, but those specialty resources is really vital to some of our most vulnerable population getting the services they need. Now, I know we could, I, you are incredibly uh, knowledgeable of literally every question I've asked you. Sometimes it's, oh, I might have to get back to you. You haven't had to get back to you yet with anything so far. What, to kind of bring it back and talk a little bit more broadly, what is a program uh, within SPS that you lately has gained strides? I mean, obviously, behavioral health being one of them we just discussed now. This grant is going to obviously, you know, catapult you a little bit. But is there any program that you've seen make significant jumps in the last five years that you're extremely proud of? Well, you're calling me out. I'm going to say all of them. Yeah, right. right? Okay. But um, I, I think one... Well, some are built better, you know, from from the start, from the, you know, if, if you want to go back to the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, some programs were started better off back then. Is there anything lately? Yeah, I, I, I and I, I'm adjusting with you a little bit. I yeah. think some of our programs, you know, we may have 20 classrooms in one kind of uh, program. So it's more robust and it, it's had more of a foundation to do things. Um, I'm really excited about our deaf and hard of hearing. Um, we've always had a solid program. We've always met the needs of our students, but it's continued to grow, especially with our partnership with Parkland School District, yeah. that we've had been able to support students. So they've had deaf swimmers. They've had deaf football players, and we've been able to provide interpreters or supports for that to happen after school, extracurricular kind of pieces, yeah. as well as um, our current staff that are supporting it are very knowledgeable and are taking it to that next level, right? So they're, they're standing on the shoulders of the people before them. Right, but that's what this is what right? I'm getting at. But they really are, um, and I'm... I dare say I'm believing it's becoming one of the premier programs in the region, if not in the Commonwealth. So I'm I'm very proud, obviously. I'm very passionate about all sure, of our programs. Sure. But that's one at the moment that is really, really shining above all of the other stars that are also shining. I did have the opportunity when I was in high school and I played rugby. Uh, we traveled to New Jersey a lot, Phillipsburg area, Alpha area. We did play uh, an all-deaf school. Mm -hmm. They beat the pants off us <laughs> and they didn't, they didn't utter a word. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, you know, like any game, uh, if you're the player, there's yelling from everyone on the field. Mm -hmm. It was very quiet and, but they knew exactly what they were all doing. So that's incredible. And that's what you're getting up these extracurricular pieces. Not saying that the CLIU is going to start an, uh, an all deaf rugby team, but I'm saying, you know, you're trying to get kids comfortable to, take a step in that sort of direction, whether they're playing sports with, you know, more typical kids or not. 
So I understand. Well, and I think um, our partnership with our, our districts um, is amazing. Um, the things that they have done and supported us in doing um, and trying um, for students. And the one thing that I, re- I really admire and love about our relationship with our districts is that when we have students from another district in one of our classrooms in their building, doesn't matter. It's a student and they treat them as theirs. Our staff are welcomed just like their staff and treated with the same compassion and support um, as anybody else. And uh, well, I've, I've, I've been in this environment and so I don't want to become overused to it and numb to it. Um, but I do hear from some of my colleagues across the state that that's not always the case. Um, and the fact that we have such a great partnership and collaboration between districts um, is a, a real factor on the things that allow students to be successful. So I know that there's a thousand other programs. Uh, there's assistive technology. There's work-based learning. I don't want to forget any of these. I do just want to remind folks that every month we do have an episode and uh, I will be doing as best as I can to kind of talk about all these people because, you know, we're getting we're getting in over half an hour, which is awesome. Uh, but I just want to remind everyone that we've really just touched. The, well, Dr. Scott, anyways, Mark has really just touched the surface of what SPS is. And so hopefully in the coming months, um, hopefully we can do this even bi-monthly uh, or bi-weekly, excuse me. Um, get people like Danielle Argot in, talk about assistive technology, get other people in to talk about other things. So um, I really appreciate you being on today. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else that you're thinking that it can just be a feeling, you know, that you, that you felt since you've taken the office of director or that you've had uh, when you were assistant director or anything that you've just been thinking at all lately? Well, um, we, we, we're, like I said before, we're really trying to look forward and we've been looking a lot um, about leadership. And when you look at leadership, you really have to look inward first. And so I really have been humbled in reflecting over the last couple of years, just um, the great honor it is to be associated with the people I do across the IU. And I would be remiss to say a vital support to our special programs and services department is our transportation department because they are the ones, the first face that the children see and the last one they see at the day and the same thing with our parents. So our transportation department is uh, excellent and has been a vital component. We consider them our partners and, you know, part of the, part of the team if you will. So I did want to give a call out to them. It's funny that you say that because I wrote down here, there's a driver aid duo. They've been together for five years now. Her name's uh, Nadine and Cheryl. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're a dynamic duo. (laughs) They are two incredible women. And um, it's funny because they are educators in their own way. Um, Emotionally, obviously, no one's doing arithmetic on the bus uh, at, at six in the morning. Yeah, maybe. But... Um, I do want to have a podcast with them too because they really are incredible. So yes, I'm glad that you said that because they are the first and last people that those children see. And if if your bus aide is you know not in a good mood, that child might empathically pick up on that, and then you know 
they use that as fuel and then they go to their middle school or their elementary school and they're giving that teacher or that aide a tough time. Uh, so, yeah, I understand that uh, transportation. I've been working as hard as I can to highlight them in every way I can. So I do appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, this is episode two of Understanding the IU. And this episode was about special programs and services. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.